Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Jack Horgan-Jones, standing in today for Hugh Linehan in the absence of literally anyone else. Jennifer Bray, our political correspondent, joins us. Jen, should we explain why it's me and you our listeners are hearing today, and perhaps that there hasn't been a coup within the Irish Times political team? Why is it just us? But there is a coup. This is exactly what's happened. It's you and me. The adults are away and who knows what we're going to get up to. We've seized the means of broadcast. We have. In the absence, during a power vacuum with Pat Leahy in Brussels, Mm -hmm. Hugh Lennon in his northern uh, holiday retreat, Harry McGee on on leave and Cormac McQuinn on paternity leave. So literally, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel and we're going to grab this opportunity with both hands. Would you like to do the Golden Cleric bit first or will I? I think you should. But no, I'm very excited for this. It was all focused on RT and under the cover of that, we snuck in and took over the podcast. Um, I have the wine under the table. I mean, we're gonna we're just going to get into it. This is going to be a different podcast. Excellent. Um, it was it, it was quite a week, wasn't it? Mm. I'm wrecked after that, oh after the, the RT, the, the never-ending nosedive that was RT this week. Can you take us through just a little bit about that. What were your impressions of the kind of why this matters politically and how the political system reacted this week to the the, the unfolding RT disaster? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. I mean, those committee hearings, I think a lot of people may have tuned into them who normally actually would never, ever be Yeah, sure, dead. the Oireachtas website crashed on Tuesday, didn't it? And that never happened. Or Wednesday, rather. That doesn't yeah. really happen. And I think a lot of people tuned in to watch them. And I had so many people making comments to me over the last two days of, how do you guys do that? How do you, Paul Kors, you know, political correspondents, watch those hearings? I'm exhausted. And so it is. But actually, I thought these were two of the, the more, of the most interesting committee hearings I've probably ever seen. Um, and I have covered some seriously boring committees yeah, down through the Yeah, you've served your time in I've the salt mines of committee hearings. From bank inquiries onwards. I Pre-legislative mean, scrutiny and all the rest of it. Everything. You've sat through it. You've, you've earned this. I have my, yeah. you know, my stripes, you know, my, my badges and my medals. But these were really interesting. And, you know, I think Alan Kelly said yesterday that it was one of the most extraordinary uh, committee hearings he had ever heard, uh, he'd ever been at. This was the Public Accounts Committee. And I think what you saw were RTE bosses kind of, I mean, at one stage it was put to them, this barter fund that the payments are made from, you know, there was a lot of talk about this barter fund. I think it was column... Um, Colin Burke. You're getting your columns muddled. Getting my columns muddled. He said that um, it was effectively a slush fund. Yeah. And it was kind of put to RT. On a nor- in a normal course of events at a public accounts committee, the other side would be defending themselves to the hill and saying, you can't use words mm. like that. And actually, I think one of them kind of shrugged and said, okay. Yeah. I mean, that was the... They're kind of battered at this stage, mm. aren't they? Like, and I think yeah. and I think that there's probably a bit of a credibility issue attaching itself to to this current crop of executives. Mm. Um, you know, is it is it credible, I suppose, the question? That they are the people to lead RT out of this quagmire. Um, we shouldn't dwell on, on RT too long because I know that we and every other media outlet on the on the island probably has dedicated huge amounts of coverage to this this week. But like 
uh, not to get too nerdy about it, it was kind of a good advertisement for doll committees, wasn't it? And, and for PAC in particular, which I think has been a little bit of a shadow of its former self. It was once kind of the most the most feared, most powerful doll committee in its heyday. And in the wake of Angela Kearns and other things, it's kind of it's 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 gone into the background a little bit. It's not the force it once was, but it gave itself these these extra or expanded powers this week, or rather, the doll granted them a freer reign to look at this. And I mean, it was the pack of old, right down to some of the personalities, Alan Kelly being a, a kind of veteran, big beast of pack being back there and, and, and shooting out the questions, you know. Um, so did you think it was a, it was a good advertisement for, for doll committees? Did, did, did they uncover stuff? Because they're often, they're often fairly criticised for just going in there and trying to extract their own pound of political fe- mm-hmm. flesh. That was my big fear, to be honest. The committees that I hate the most are the ones where politicians go in and they get really enraged and they're shouting and roaring about what an absolute thundering disgrace. To get the clip, to get the clip for 6-1. Yeah, to get onto the 6-1 or whatever. Because and they know, and just not to dwell on it, but like they, they know that if you seem angry, mm-hmm. that travels and is more likely to get picked up by the media as opposed to if you diligently kind of focus on, on questions, you know. And I was talking to a former spin doctor in one of the previous governments and he said that, you know, when his deputy were going in to committee, he said, your job is to get one minute or one minute 30 on the 6-1 news and everything after that, you know, is, is a bonus. But I thought, in fairness, there was a bit of that, a bit of shaping this week, but there was some fairly intent and diligent questioning that did uncover quite a lot of new stuff. Yeah, oh, there was some ham acting, I have no doubt about it, there always is. But the, the, my fear was that there was going to be all of that, basically, yeah. you know, shouting and roaring and, and giving it loads. Actually, what we saw was the opposite, and I mentioned, I think it was Colin Burke, now that uh, my brain cells are re- re- uh, reconvening again. But, um, you know, he was very effective, you know, he kind of, he he asked questions just very directly. And mm. the reason why I'm bringing him up and and, uh, and others and is because sometimes it's those people who actually get mm. the answers. So one of the most revealing exchanges in the entire committee was um, at the, I wouldn't say at the cost of, but certainly between the the TDs and Richard Collins, who's Ortiz's chief financial officer. Yeah. He was being asked, why were these payments in the system on the invoices being labelled as consultancy fees when mm. we know now that they were top-ups effectively? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what is your understanding of this? And he said that he, after the auditors came in and said, what the, what the hell is this, basically? Yeah. That he went to the former Director General, D Forbes, and he said, what's that? And she that you know, this is his account. I'm at pains to say this is his account, of, mm. and I, I would love to hear D Forbes' account. I think a lot of people would. Uh, his account was that she said, "Oh, these are related to consultancy mm. uh, advice given to me by uh, this agency about how RT structured and presented itself during COVID nineteen." Yeah. Now that was really interesting, very revealing, and those answers were got through methodical, straightforward. Questions precisely, yeah, um, and, and, and 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 it's the it's the it's the virtue of having someone in front of you, uh, because I actually heard a version of that last weekend, and we got a version of it reportable that kind of didn't quite have all the detail huh. there, um, but you know you're limited in some ways by what you can establish as fact and reportable fact, but like if you have the relevant people in front of you in a public session of an Arctis committee, that's an incredibly powerful tool for eliciting, you know, you know important truths about complex subjects. But listen, we won't we won't dwell too much on. Well, can I just say on, on that point before we move on? You mentioned about. The public Accounts Committee and the power of it and its standing. There was a heyday. Like the, the, the Public Accounts Committee can make the career of politicians. Look at Mary Lynn MacDonald. That was absolutely 
one of the major parts of her gaining such a massive public profile. She got a reputation as being like, you go into the pack and if you have to face Mary Lou MacDonald, you should start shaking in your boots. You know, and her and Shane Ross had this kind of duo thing going on yeah. for a while. He actually writes about that in his book. Um, but I think there was a, a couple of years where it was in abeyance and it didn't really seem to have much heft. And yesterday we saw 75% of the time the best of the pack. I mean... Personally, in my personal life, I'm not a confrontational person, but when it comes to my job in politics, I have to say they drew blood mm. and not that it's a blood sport, but it was good to see actual outcomes from a committee. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's certainly moved it on. Uh, moving on ourselves, uh, Jen, you sat down uh, for a, a feature length interview with the Minister for Justice, the returning Minister for Justice, most recently the Minister Without Portfolio, um, Helen McEntee. Uh, you cover a whole range of topics, but we started. you started off with her, her return to the brief, really. Um, talk us through what she what she had to say and I suppose, you know, how she is readjusting to, to the, the hectic life of, of a cabinet minister. Yeah, so Helen McEntee, a Minister for Justice, she's been back in her post a little over a month now. Um, seemed like a good time to sit down with her and find mm. out, you know, but basically how the job is going. But also I was honestly interested in the personal side of it too, um, as a woman, firstly, but also uh, as a political correspondent, you know. Um, and we, like you said, we touched on a lot of different subjects. I suppose some of them we can get into a little bit later that people might be interested in that we've talked about on this podcast before. Things like the hate crime and hate speech bill, um, migration, mm. uh, abortion, lots of stuff was in there. There was lots in there. But I suppose the first thing I wanted to to ask her really was, What's it been like coming back? Um, she's had her, her second son, um, Vincent, and I, I, I wanted to know what's it been like coming back effectively to a job like the Minister for Justice? Like in any job, really, for a mother, it's difficult. But in this job, I think I can imagine it's extra intense. Yeah, well, as you say, I mean, I'm not the only person who's working in a, in a busy job. Um, and kind of the, the older I guess and obviously the fact that I have two kids now I've kind of come to realise it's not straightforward and it's not easy and you do have to juggle and sometimes you have to compromise and sometimes you know you end up having more work on your plate than you'd like so it, it is about getting the balance um, I was saying to the guys there recently I uh, remember being at an event in Trim I think it was probably the first year I was elected and it was a women in business event and I was 26 I wasn't married I had no children I remember standing up and being like you know we can do everything. We should be able to do everything. There's nothing that can stop, you know. And afterwards, I was talking in a at a table with a group of women and one of them was like, you know, it's hard when you have children and when you're trying to juggle. And I was like, okay. And now, myself, 10 years later, I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I know exactly what she meant. It's like, it's not easy. It's not straightforward. There's lots of women who have to try and juggle and, and do the two and you feel guilty and you don't always get it right. But, you know... Yeah. You, you just have to kind of keep focused and, and make sure that you uh, you do the best that you can. Uh, Jen, I thought that was a really interesting insight. Um, for a long time, it's uh, been kind of the received wisdom that it's not the right thing to do to ask a powerful or influential woman about how they juggle their family life and that it's more appropriate to consider uh, a woman 
solely on her professional merits and not complicated with, you know, the baggage of how do you do it? You must be some kind of superwoman. Uh, my personal view is that kind of risks, that kind of, you know, over-attention to propriety risks obscuring the fact that it, it can be and is really difficult to juggle family life uh, with a busy professional life and that that is particularly true for women and mothers. Uh, so why did you think it was important to address that with her? Yeah, and I, I, I think your question is really interesting because I've, you know, I've thought about this a lot in in many different aspects, kind of of my own life and my friend's life, and you know people that I know. Let alone in in terms of professional capacity, and the question of asking women, you know, what's it like? How do you juggle both? Sometimes when people react badly to that, the reason why they're reacting badly is because the question doesn't really get asked of men that way. Mm. It seems to be a question that's always asked of women, because historically, and I would contend still, the actual weight of um, the responsibility or the actual juggling does fall, imp- you know, um, disproportionately on women, I think. Um, having said that, I think that it is a question then that follows, that should be asked of men. And if this is a question that we can just ask of men and women, then that to me is okay. Um, and it's important, I think, because going back to any job, and that's the point I was making in the question, uh, after you have one kid and then two and, and however many more anybody might have, is difficult. Um, and there are so many different elements towards mm. leaving your your kid and getting back to work. And we and I got into with Helen as well a bit about guilt. Um, but for me, I kind of think it's important. It should be asked because it's a real life situation. Mm. Um, and I remember when she came back from her first maternity leave, um, she didn't want to talk about it at all. And I thought that was absolutely fair enough. And for me, I'd be led by the person. If they turn around to me and say, do you know what? I don't really want to get into that. I just want to focus on, fine. Um, That's fine by me, of course. This time, I thought was a little bit different. And and I think part of that reason, perhaps, is the fact that it has kind of quietly been turned against her. There have been, you know, a suggestion or two of briefings. Um, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but I think it was something like, uh, one publication ran a line which said that Simon Harris was the minister for doing stuff and she was the minister for having babies and you put that to her. I saw two kinds of commentary around you coming back. Um, one of them was, this is a political masterstroke. She's avoided all of the, you know, burning fires in the Department of Justice. I know. And then the second one was, uh, and actually I think this was a quote in a, in a small publication and I will say it was, you know, Simon Harris was the minister for doing things and Helen, Ma- Helen McEntee was min- like a minister who had babies. Now, I and only I, heard that recently, to be honest. But mm-hmm. yeah, what did like? What do you think when you see so, like something like that? Well, firstly, if you're in a department for five years, you don't avoid fires. <laughs> there's always issues, and I mean, there's always things you have to deal with. So, I, I mean, the idea that you you take maternity leave to avoid doing your work, it's insulting. But you know, uh, and the other comment. I mean, what I know about comments I've seen is nobody's brave enough to put their name to it. Um, so, I mean, I really don't have much time for any of those kind of comments. Um, we live in 2023 and the idea that just because you're in a senior role and take maternity leave, that it's going to, I don't know, that, that you have those kind of comments being said. It's pretty ridiculous. And I think women looking at that as well are appalled. 
Yeah, and actually, there is another interesting point she made. I mean, I don't go around the doll, stalk around the doll corridors, uh, costing every female TD I see, saying, "How do you do it all? How do you juggle it?" You know, that's just not my uh, thing. Um, but she was the first cabinet minister um, to take maternity leave, and highlighted this huge lacuna in the law. And a lot of people were shocked. Like we're living in the year twenty twenty three, allegedly, and we don't have these uh, this legislation for women in public office. So, it, I think naturally she opened up that conversation. And I think this time when we sat down to talk, she was a lot more open about talking about the the impact and how she's dealt with that. Um, Just final question on this before we move on. Uh, Helen McAtee has proven uh, that a cabinet minister can take maternity leave. Do you think, and this isn't necessarily about Helen McAtee, do you think a Taoiseach could could take maternity leave? Oh, wow. Great question. I think it would be very difficult the way things are constituted right now um, to take a full maternity leave if you were a Taoiseach. But I think if there was proper thought put into it, um, probably as part of this legislation that they're working on, if they actually considered that, then I don't see why not. Um, But it would be the kind of thing that you'd almost want to be thinking ahead of. So they're sitting down to work through this legislation at the moment. They haven't actually enacted it. And what they're looking at is things like how do allowances work for um, female uh, politicians who take maternity leave? Wouldn't it be great actually if as part of that they considered Mm -hmm. that and maybe it is actually part of the ministerial thing. Maybe it's the same rules as as Taoiseach. I don't see any reason why it shouldn't be possible. Um, Politically, there could be all kinds of people manoeuvring for Mm. once you're gone. I mean, I'd say that would be very difficult. So you might be be able to create a kind Mm. of legislative pathway for it. Mm. It could be possible on paper, but the litmus test may ultimately be, would it be politically possible? And also, I think, you know, you would have to ask the question, how would voters necessarily feel about it as well? Well, I would really hope the voters would feel absolutely okay about it Mm -hmm. because every voter came from the same place. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So... Get with the times. Yeah. Um, we d- you did talk about her, her leadership ambition as well. And, and she gave the kind of the stock padding for this. You know, there is no uh, there is no vacancy. There is, uh, I'm, I'm incredibly focused on my brief. I think she said that she was 120% focused on her brief and, and improvement even above the usual 110%. Notwithstanding the fact that there's no vacancy, you know, um, other, I suppose, contenders have said, you know, in future, they're not ruling anything out. Like, where do you stand on the, the leadership question? I know you're fully focused on your job right now, um, but is, is that something in the future that you'd be open to? I've never ruled anything out, and I've always said I'm ambitious. But, and I mean, it's not a way to avoid a question. When I say that I'm focused on what I'm doing, anyone who knows me and my work knows that I give it 120%. So the fact that I'm in such a busy department and dealing with issues that I feel are so important... Uh, Jen, what did you think of her answer? Yes, 110% is the baseline nowadays <laughs> for how much you give your effort as a minister. So, of course, she had to go to 120%. Um, two things about this, right? We talked a bit before, I'm sure we've all talked privately, and, you know, we've heard lots in, in the world of politics and gossipy political circles about Simon Harris's stint in the Department of Justice and how he gave it everything and he tore up the cabinet agenda and he was flat out, like, whizzing around like a... Like, I don't know what. And, you know, he did. He gave, he gave it everything. And I talked to people who worked with him in the Department of Justice and he, they told me he genuinely is a very hard worker. However, there was, it was viewed politically a certain way, you know, in the, in the context of his leadership ambition. You can't get away from it. When, whenever you're discussing Simon Harris and Helen McEntee, it is the case that they are just the, the next most obvious putative leadership candidates after Leo Varadkar. So, I mean, you can't really discuss one's leadership ambitions without discussing the others and how they interact. And that's why I think it was so fascinating that Simon Harris was the the minister who took over the brief while she was gone. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of people said, why would Leo Varadkar put, you know, uh, Simon Harris into Helen McEntee's role? Like, the, the two of them will probably be battling it out for the leadership next time around. It was a shop window for Harris as well, though, wasn't it? I mean, let's be frank. Like, I mean, it's not a formal demotion to go from health to further and higher education. But, like, it's a lot less headlines. It's a lot less headlines, but a lot of the time it's a lot less negative headlines <laughs> when you think about it. So maybe it's not that bad at all. Um, but, yeah, and, you know, a lot of people talked about it you know, what's he doing and he's worked so hard. Anyway, the question that I'd kind of put to her was, what did you think of that? You know, and I thought her answer was very funny. No, I mean, Simon did a great job in fairness and he took on an extra department, same way Heather did the last time. So, I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. He obviously continued a huge amount of work that I'd started. I have a justice plan, so there's clear timelines. But he also put his own stamp on this and he focused on issues that he wanted to to focus on. Um but, I mean, he did a great job and there's nothing really more to say if people want to compare. I mean, I have a really busy agenda. I have a few weeks now before the dough rises and want to get as much work done as possible. But people will always do that, no matter who's in a role before or after. You know, it's easy to compare and say one person has done this or the other. But, again, it's not something that I pass any notice. And I certainly wasn't sitting at home going, what's he doing? What's going on here? <laughs> it just wasn't happening, you know. Uh, she's, she made all the right noises there. One line did uh, jump out at me uh, when she said, he obviously continued a, a huge amount of work that I started. Am I reading too much into that or do you think there's a little swipe there? So when she said it, I mean, you can hear from the audio clip or it, a lot of these things don't translate into print because you can't hear the person's voice. Mm. Um, but this is a great thing about a podcast, actually. <laughs> um, but she she didn't say it in a particularly loaded way. Like it was a very by the by comment, but it did stay with me. I mean, she, she's saying like, well, that was my work and he was continuing it and now I'm back. And I'll let people make up their own mind about that. But yeah, it, it stood out to me too, Jack. Mm. Just finally on leadership and ambition and Simon Harris and Helen McEntee, um, when the time comes, and it will come, when Leo Varadkar shuffles off the political stage, um, do you expect both of them to be in uh, the race for leadership and how do you think that'll play out? 130%. (laughs) Expect them to be in the race together. I think it'll be a really interesting one because Simon Harris is a um, great communicator. No one can take away from him. Remember, uh, one TD said to me recently, uh, their comment was, "No one, there's no one within the party within an ass's roar of him mm. when it comes to media communication. And I agree. He has a way of answering questions and dealing with an issue that kind of is very convincing, I think. Mm. Um, but on the flip side, some of his colleagues have commented to me before that he talks the talk, but does he walk the walk? Like that he makes promises, but does he come back and deliver on them? And he I think, couldn't deliver on facial recognition technology while uh, while Helen McAtee well, was right. He, now, she couldn't either. Uh, that Fine Gael kind of lost out in that battle, not to get too into the weeds on it, but there was a plan to bring it through as an amendment to a piece of legislation, which the Greens objected to. And there was a, a very much kind of toe-to-toe dynamic uh, during the last kind of half of, of Simon Harris being in the Department of Justice. But he, he, he didn't get it done. That actually kind of feeds as well a little bit back into the question you asked before because he brought that issue right up to the hill and on his very last day standing in as Minister for Justice he said there are some things that you do not um, there are some things you do not compromise on when you are the Minister for Justice (laughs) on his last day Uh, and this is one of them and I remember reading that and thinking wow because she's coming back the next day and that's that's the line in the sand drawn for her. And she came back in. She looked at it. She said, OK, the Greens, they're really not happy. They want this in a standalone bill because they have such concerns about abuse of this technology. 
they had it out and then she decided, okay, yeah, I'm going to put it in, stand, in its own standalone legislation. However, we're going to start tendering for the body cams now. So much for muchness. There's two very different leadership styles. That feeds into your last question. We'll see two completely different styles. We'll see one that says those kind of words and, you know, walks something up to the hill, which is actually great for us journalists because mm. it makes good copy. But then you have the other style, which is a little bit, I don't know really what phrase I would use for it, but it is certainly... I suppose it is more behind the scenes, kind of a calming way to go about things. Um, I think there's two very different styles there. And I think that's what you see in a, in a leadership contest. If and well, not if it will happen. The only question really is, is when. You got into a lot of policy stuff with uh, with Helen McEntee and one big issue on her desk. As she returns is the hate speech bill. We're going to examine what she said about that after this short break. You're listening to the Irish Times. You're very welcome back. Uh, Jen, the hate speech bill, uh, just very quickly, can you maybe bring our listeners up to speed on uh, what exactly is going on with the hate speech bill and why it's proven to be so controversial? Yeah, the hate speech and hate crime bill is making its way through the Oireachtas. It was more, more, most recently in the Shannad. The intention, I think, from Helen McEntee is to have it fully completed, passed and enacted by the end of this year. Now, we know, um, and we did a whole podcast, well, half podcast on this recently, about the concerns about the hate speech bill, of which there are many and many validly held. Um, they've been raised in the doll, in the Shannad, outside the doll. And that there are, there are a couple of different aspects to it. One of them, people are genuinely concerned about freedom of expression, particularly the public are worried. You know, what exactly does this mean for what I will not, will and will not be able to say? If I hold an opinion that is controversial, potentially offensive, uh, distasteful mm. can I still go online and do this or am I going to be hauled off to jail effectively that's one of the questions that's come up another one is around the definition of hatred what exactly uh, uh, in, in the legislation does it define it as and the third one is around uh, the definition of gender so we, we got into it a little bit and I suppose what I was asking her really was can you finally nip this one in the bud and say what exactly is the purview of this legislation? Who will and will not be impacted? We've actually included what isn't in the 89 Act, um, protections for people to be able to say things in general debate, in general discussion, be it for scientific, religious, academic or just general debate. So there's actual protections in this bill that allows people to say something that another person mightn't agree with, they might find offensive, but it's where an individual tries to incite other people to actually hate a person. So there's a very big difference between someone tweeting something and saying, well, I don't believe X. That's not you going out and saying, I don't believe this person should be able to do whatever. Therefore, I'm encouraging everybody to go and hate that person. I mean, there's a very clear delineation between someone stating a fact or having an opinion to then crossing a line and encouraging other people to go out and hate that person or the group of people or to be violent against them. If you boil it down to the fact that it's not what the person who's being wronged thinks, it's not that Helen thinks that somebody's been mean to me and that they've said hate speech, it's, well, what does the guard think? Is there enough evidence? What does the DPP think? Should it go to a court? In a court, what does the jury of your peers think? Gen my, my general sense of this is that from a legislative point of view, this law is going to be passed and enacted. Um, you know, I don't think there's going to be any government TDs going overboard on this. She definitely faces a battle 
within the Oireachtas, and there's been some high-profile critics and criticism of it, but, you know, in all likelihood, this will become law. So, to an extent, the, the wider and more complex battle that she has to win is not necessarily around getting this on the statute books. It's around convincing the public that it is, it is not uh, in her t- uh, in her telling all the things they've been told, all the terrible things they've been told it could be, and is in fact something else. Listening to that explanation that she gave to you, uh, do you think that would do enough to convince someone who had fears that this was a, a, an overweening or intrusive piece of legislation? No, I don't think so. Um, unfortunately not. I think her explanation was very understandable. Um, I understood it. I think anybody who listened to it would, would get that she's saying there's a difference between having an offensive view that you can have and then having, or secondly, having an offensive view and then you then, then direct it at someone of a protected characteristic and say, get that person or incite actual violence towards them. And, you know, the other point she was making along those lines was it doesn't just come down to some sort of arbitrary, someone points the finger at you and say, you're guilty of hate speech. She said that, you know, this will actually come down to what does the DPP say? What did the Gardaí say? Um, what does a jury of your peers say in court? Um, what does the judge say? Like she was basically saying, you know, there's a whole range of different hurdles to, to, to cross and to jump over before this could possibly be reality that somebody would be convicted of hate speech, hate speech or a hate crime. I think the biggest failing that this government and probably um, Harris and Helen and McEntee together is that they prob- they haven't properly explained to people exactly what is and isn't. And I think what they could probably do better there is to use real examples of, you know, because they talk about these culture wars and tweets and this, that and the other. Pick them out and show us exactly what does and does not constitute hate speech because I know for a fact there are politicians, TDs and senators who are confused about this themselves. And let me tell you, that does not help. So there's a huge amount of political attention on the uh, on the hate crime bill, um, which I suppose in, in the round, even though it's not directly related to a kind of culture war issue, has in some ways uh, become associated with, with the culture wars. I remember someone said something to me once last year about Helen McEntee and, and the criticism, and it should be said was off the record and unattributed, but the criticism was that she, she was all woke and no stick. And the, the suggestion to that was that she was less focused on criminal justice issues. And I think that in a, in a kind of subtle way, certainly within Fianna Fáil, there has been a sense emerging over time that perhaps criminal justice is something that she hasn't been as, as attentive to as other issues within her portfolio. Um, do you think that there's anything to that, first of all? And second of all, do you think that we could be seeing the germ of, you know, a, a grounds for differentiation, perhaps between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael going forward? Um, perhaps when as an election inevitably comes in, looms into view? Well, criminal justice is an issue all of us should be concerned about, you know, personal safety and all that. Um, but it's a big issue for Fine Gael, you know, the party of law and order. So I think naturally within her own party, there definitely are people who probably would wish that she would put it perhaps on one of the, take it off one of the back burners because some people do perceive it being that way. And there was a story in the Sunday Independent last weekend and that story detailed how there are anywhere up to 30,000 crimes being investigated in one of the busiest districts in Dublin. And now those those figures uh, seem to be disputed by the guards, but the journalist has, ver- has verified herself, um, you know, through her own sources that, that that is the case. So we'll go on those figures. And that is very serious. You're talking about a, a district in Dublin, Dublin West, that is absolutely, you know, buckling under the weight um, and 
struggling with a lack of resources. So I did actually ask her this in the interview about those figures. And we've also seen figures during the week in the CSO, loads of different crimes on the up. Now, some of that could be attributed to COVID, but as it is, there are lots of crimes on the up. And she was kind of saying, well, not all crimes are on the increase. And when she talked about Garda resources, she talked about how maybe we need to put the resources where they're needed most, you know, basically reallocate. And she went back to this Fine Gael and actually, sorry, it's a coalition objective. Overall, my objective, and it's been my objective always, is that we increase our guard of numbers. So it's not just something we're looking at now. It's always been a priority that we would get to the 15,000 beyond mark. So 15,000 is not the target. It's just, I believe we need to get there and move beyond that. To get the guard, the number of guard to the 15,000 mark, and beyond. Um, and I think that will be a huge focus in the budget. So perhaps that will be an opportunity for her to actually show uh, the public and especially her own party members that this isn't something that's in the back of her mind. It is at the front of her mind. And to deliver for the Garda, who are obviously an important kind of constituency Absolutely. group within the, the justice portfolio. Just finally, uh, Jen, I thought one of the interesting things um, was when you asked her about the, the review of, of abortion, uh, of the abortion legislation. And she, do you feel she laid down a bit of a marker there? Yeah, she is the first um, Fine Gael minister, first Fine Gael member of cabinet to come out and back a lot of the reforms that have been called for by the barrister, Marie O'Shea. Uh, I interviewed Simon Harris, God, it must be around three weeks ago, three or four weeks ago. And I asked him the very same question and he kind of was holding his judgment, which kind of surprised me because he was the minister who shepherded in these changes and he was one of the most instrumental uh, people during that whole campaign, especially within government, pushing it through. Um, And I also asked, I interviewed Taoiseach Leo Varadkar in Jersey the week before, the weekend before last. And he also didn't, you know, he didn't really want to go there at all, except to raise questions about certain points of data that we won't get into right now. Um, And I kind of honestly expected the same because this is what I'm getting pretty much from all politicians. Don't ask me this question. I don't want to answer it. It was forthright, wasn't it? There was no kind of processology. There was no kind Mm -hmm. of kicking it to touch. It was, here's what I think. Yeah. And she, she didn't hesitate. You know, she said, firstly, on the three day wait, which is one of the major recommendations that it should not be mandatory anymore. She said she's pretty straightforward on that. I don't believe that there should be a three-day wait. Um, I think if a person, and if a woman, sorry, has made a decision to actually go to a doctor or to go to a clinician or to go to a hospital, it's not the first time they've thought about it. Um, And the idea that you would say to somebody, go back and think about that again, um, quite frankly, I, I just, I don't agree with this. I think it's difficult enough for a person to walk into uh, that scenario, you know, uh, and personally, I would be in favour of the recommendation. And the other broader recommendations, I, I know you're only, only back, you've a lot on your plate, so you might have had a chance to read the full report, but there's, you know, around decriminalisation, for example, it's a big one. Yeah, well, again, that's something that I would support. Um, you know, we passed, legi- or we, we, we agreed at Cabinet yesterday as well that we would have exclusion zones, which uh, are there to make sure that people are not intimidated or not abused when they're, you know, again, when a woman has made what is a very difficult decision um, to, to to try and protect people in this scenario. So, yeah. Um, yeah it sounds like you're kind of view. broadly in favour of the majority of recommendations. Is there anything that you don't agree with? Um, might be an easier way of going at it rather than going through it one by one. No, but I, I, I think I would have to, I, I have read it, but it's something that I'd have to go through again and see. But, I mean, the ones you've mentioned, I would be in favour of. I think this puts the heat on her colleagues in Fine Gael personally. And yeah, we'll see where that one goes.
Okay, listen, thanks very much, Jen. A huge amount more in that interview, which runs in today, Saturday's edition, weekend edition of the Irish Times. Um, Thanks very much to everyone for listening to this, the the first podcast of our benign joint dictatorship. Come back next week when we may have released some of the rest of the political team from the Gulag. Mm -hmm.